Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're a guest here today, I'll just sort of quickly explain what we do. It's not rocket science. If it was, we wouldn't have Brian as an elder. We just open up to chapter 1 verse 1 and we just... We just start preaching, and when we get through with a book, then we move on to another book, and that's what we've been doing for quite a number of years, and it seems to have really benefited the congregation here. This is God's Word. This is what God has given us. This is what we are to know about Him, and so we are just naive enough to believe that every line of Scripture is inspired and important. And so we hope we preach it faithfully. This morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We have been here for some months before today, so if this is your first time with us, you have stepped into a study that is months in the making, but that's okay. We'll try to quickly catch you up. We'll begin reading this morning, though, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. The Word of God says this, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Okay, so if you've been with us throughout the study of 2 Corinthians, you know we've made our way to the final section of this book, a section that runs from the beginning of chapter 10 through the end of chapter 13. In the earlier part of this book, Paul has defended his ministry. He has thanked the majority, at least, in the church for supporting him. That was really chapters 1 through 7. And then Paul urged this assembly of believers to finish what they started, to complete the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem that they had committed to do. That was chapters 8 and 9. But in chapter 10, Paul takes an entirely different tone because the problem facing this church is eternally dangerous. 
False teachers had weaseled their way into the congregation and they had conned enough of the membership there for Paul to have major concerns about their salvation. Look at verse 4 here in chapter 11. Here's the seriousness of it. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is Paul's concern. A different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Look, these false teachers were preaching another Jesus, another gospel, following after a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. And the church was tolerating it. Now obviously for these men to have success, they needed to undermine the influence of the Apostle Paul in the congregation. Remember, it was Paul who founded this church. It was Paul who preached the gospel by which so many of these had come to faith in Christ. It was the Apostle Paul who spent over 18 months establishing this church, essentially serving as a lead elder of sorts as he taught them the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But these men, these intruders, they claimed to possess more authority than the Apostle Paul. And they claimed to have a higher knowledge than the Apostle Paul. We saw that when we studied chapter 10. If you've not heard those sermons, uh, it, it would help you to make some connections to go back and listen to those sermons. They're, they're available, at least the audio is is available. All of our sermons are available on, on our church app, on Sermon Audio's app, Sermon Audio. Go, go listen to those. Anyway, these men came in. They met the standards of the professional orators of their day. And this was something that Paul had no desire to do and literal, little, little tolerance of. Paul did not believe he should have to meet the expected standards of the speakers of their day. Look back at chapter 10, verse 12. Here's what he says about these men. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. Look, look, these men had established a standard for what a successful preacher looks like and sounds like. And then they met their own standard and boasted that they were elite, even above the Apostle Paul. And so though Paul deplores self-boasting, his hand is, is forced. He must defend himself against the false teachers because... The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Now, verse 16 of the 11th chapter, which we read right up to, through chapter 12, verse 13, is often referred to as the fool's speech, where Paul re refers to himself as a fool a number of times due to the boasting that he is forced 
to do. We're, we're in a section now leading into that, really which serves almost like a preface for that speech, an introduction of sorts. And the title of my sermon this morning is Self-Sacrificing Love. And in, in this passage, Paul defends his unwillingness to accept money from the saints in Corinth, an action that certainly takes aim at the greed of the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. All right, let's work through this text. Verse 7. You can see that this is playing right in from what we looked at last week because it begins with the word or. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Now this is a rhetorical question by Paul. A rhetorical question is one that doesn't need an answer. The answer is obvious to anyone reading it. The obvious answer here being no, Paul did not commit a sin by ministering to these saints free of charge. It sounds ridiculous that anybody would even accuse him of somehow sinning in that. But really, we can sort of understand this. We can relate to this. Americans are willing to pay big money to hear someone give a speech, especially if the speaker is someone very popular. The bigger the speaker, the bigger the paycheck. For instance, Tony Robbins a non-Christian, self-help, motivational speaker gets about $300,000 to speak at an event. $300,000. Politicians, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it doesn't matter. They all regularly receive hundreds of thousands of dollars to give one speech. One speech. And people will pay whatever they're asked for a plate, a space at a table. This is not new, what we see today. It was going on in the Roman Empire in the first century. And the best orators, the best speakers drew the most money. But when Paul visited Corinth, he wouldn't take their money. You can see why. In fact, in Acts 18 verse 3, it tells us that Paul worked as a tent maker alongside Aquila and Priscilla because they were of the same occupation. They were tent makers or, or leather workers perhaps. But what was the issue here? Why, why did not Paul take money? If you, if you were with us in 1 Corinthians... You know in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul actually goes to great extents to defend pastors, elders, missionaries receiving monetary support. He even uses the example of a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd as proof that those who work in the gospel, those who minister the gospel, should be funded through that ministry. Paul wrote to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer when it 
the laborer deserves his wages. Paul believes those preaching should be compensated. What's the deal here? I mean, did Paul's practice in Corinth contradict what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write elsewhere? I don't think so. Not even for a second. Look, Paul knew that certain situations called for a different approach. For instance, when it came to an open door for missionary work to the Jews, Paul was willing to have Timothy circumcised. However, when some Judaizers demanded that circumcision was required for salvation, Paul flatly refused to have Titus circumcised. Two completely different ways of dealing with circumcision because two completely different situations called for different courses of action. And I think that's what's going on in Corinth. Paul is not contradicting what he wrote elsewhere. I read more than I perhaps should on this, but because of class divisions in the first century, oftentimes wealthy people, we'll call them benefactors, would support those less fortunate than them, we'll call them beneficiaries. And it sounds like a good thing, right? The wealthy are helping the poor, but in fact what it ended up doing was requiring the beneficiary to be committed to serving the benefactor, the one that helped him. Listen, Paul was a well-educated man. He knew very well what the societal norms were, and Paul had no desire whatsoever to be indebted to some pagan benefactor in Corinth, so he wasn't taking his money. That's what's going on. Not only that, not only were there societal norms to think about, we know, that's history, we know from the Bible that there was division in the church at Corinth. We found this out also in 1 Corinthians. And this division primarily revolved around two things. First, they had divided into schismatic factions relative to their favorite preacher. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and some that were apparently holier than the rest said, I follow Jesus, though... It's doubtful that that was as sincere as it might come across. Nevertheless, Paul addressed that head on chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. This was a divided church. There was also a division in Corinth between the rich and the poor. We found this out in our study of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul asked the rich this, Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? It's the rich looking down their noses at the poor. Paul says to them, What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So you see, there's a lot going on in Corinth. I think we can at least begin to see that there may have been a reason, or perhaps we might say reasons, plural, that Paul did not take money from this splintered church and this broken society. He's not contradicting what he's written elsewhere. He's just using Holy Spirit-given wisdom. Nevertheless, it was customary in their day to take money when it was offered. And to refuse it, from everything I've read of their culture, to refuse a monetary offering was essentially to discount the worth of the giver. They would be offended. 
Moyer Hubbard writes it this way, quote, to refuse patronage of a social superior was to risk offending a potentially powerful individual in the community. Such an act might be construed as communicated that the patron, the one giving the money, was unworthy in the eyes of the client, the one receiving the money, end quote. If that's true, and it's widely written about in tons of books, I think it probably is, if that's true, then these imposters that had come into Corinth, these false teachers, they took Paul's good intentions and they used them against him. It seems they said if Paul truly loved you, he'd take your money. If he truly respected you, he'd receive your support. A thing that the intruders were more than willing to do, right? They were, they were more than willing to receive whatever they could get. Remember what Paul called them back in, in verse 17 of chapter 2. He said, we are not, Paul and his companions, we are not like so many peddlers of the Word of God. That's what he's accusing these false teachers of being, peddlers of the Word of God. These supposed super apostles, as Paul called them in verse 5, they were in it for the money. Paul's unwillingness to receive support from the messed up Corinthians was probably hurting their cause. And so they had to come up with a story to incriminate Paul. They accused Paul of refusing funds because he didn't really love the saints in Corinth, at least not the way he loved the other churches that he took money from. Well, apparently they had made an impact. And they had convinced, at the very least, a significant minority of the church. Nevertheless, Paul is not changing his practice. He is sticking to his guns. Look at verse 8. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. If you go back to Acts 18 verse 5, it says that it wasn't until Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia that Paul was able to be full-time occupied with the Word. I think it's safe to assume that the churches in Macedonia, which we've read about already in 2 Corinthians, were the ones that Paul says he robbed in order to serve in Corinth. I don't think that's a great assumption. I know it's been a few months since we were in chapter 8, but you may recall it was these churches, the churches of Macedonia, most likely the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans, it was those churches that had given beyond their means to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. Those churches were poor. They were dirt poor. And yet they gave not only to the poor, but they also gave to Paul's missionary endeavors to further the gospel. Look, we know for a fact from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi that they helped him often. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day. They supported him from the very beginning. And apparently they were the only ones that supported him 
at certain times. Philippians 4, Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So the church in Philippi supported Paul when others wouldn't. They seem to have helped him frequently. It's probably them that he's speaking of here as having robbed. By the way, Paul, by saying he robbed them, does not mean he, he ripped them off. That's not what's going on. He's simply saying that he received money from the church in Philippi, not to minister in Philippi, but to minister in Corinth. So they were paying for somebody else's goods, so to speak. And even when money did not come in from elsewhere, Philippi, wherever, Paul funded his own ministry by tent making. Notice what it says in verse 9. When I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden, uh, I didn't burden anyone. Look, the ends did not always meet for Paul. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Look, when Paul found himself wanting in Corinth, out of funds, broke, we might say, he didn't burden, he didn't, I don't know why I'm struggling with the word burden. He didn't burden anyone. He didn't ask them for money. He wouldn't take it. I think we've, we've explained why he wouldn't take it. But even when things were difficult, Paul wouldn't take their money because he did not want things to be misconstrued. He didn't want to validate the false teachers. Nevertheless, here again, these brothers who came from Macedonia supplied his need. Again, possibly referring to the church at Philippi specifically. And Paul then digs his heels in. He said, so I refrained, past tense, and I will refrain, future tense, from burdening you in any way. I ain't taking you money. That's what Paul says. We especially know that the false teachers were willing to take it. And so Paul says, I'm not taking it because that would ultimately damage the gospel for me to align myself beside them. But that's getting ahead of ourself in the passage. Let's, let's work through. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. This boasting of mine is Paul's refusal to take monetary support in Corinth. Now remember, Paul loathes self-commendation. But he's been forced into it. He, he's been forced to compare, <coughs> excuse me, to compare himself to the false teachers. And so, this is part of that comparison. Paul says, they took money, and I ain't taking your money. See, that's, that's part of this comparison that he's making. And he adds an oath here for emphasis. As the truth of Christ is in me. But Paul, that's about as strong a language as Paul can possibly use. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Now Corinth was the chief city in the regions of Achaia. So he refers to them. There's no question there. And he may, he may actually refer to some surrounding churches as well. We cannot be certain. Corinth is clearly primary. 
But if there were surrounding churches, I'm sure the false teachers had affected those surrounding churches as well. That's not uncommon. Look, churches in close proximity often display the same characteristics. Good, bad, whatever. In, in this case, it was, it was bad. Nevertheless, Paul is clear. He is not changing his practice, societal custom notwithstanding, whatever. He is not changing what he's been doing. There may have been a time Paul could have accepted money from the church at Corinth if they matured, but the influence of these false teachers had pushed such a possibility way into the future. In fact, I doubt Paul envisioned anytime soon that he could take money from this church now that this has all occurred. Notice verse 11. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Another oath here. God knows. You know, it, it's sad that Paul has to go so far in expressing his love to these people after having served them for a year and a half really at his own expense and the support of perhaps one church, Philippi. They, they were missing the forest for the trees, right? They, we, we can sometimes overlook the obvious if we thrive on friction. I, I fear little has changed. Here's what Paul is saying. Societal custom may have said that you take money from a benefactor if you had respect for that person. But something far greater than a customary practice was at stake here. If Paul took money now, it validated the work of these false teachers, these pseudo-apostles. And so he wasn't doing it. In fact, that's what he says in verse 12. Look, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Listen, not every church, not every group of churches had false teachers infiltrated. But we know it did happen in the region of Galatia. There were a number of churches affected there. Some of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that had those letters written. There were seven churches that had letters written to them. We know some of those were influenced by false teachers. And without question... The church at Corinth had entertained false teachers to a great degree. Look, these men were corrupt, these false teachers. They were in it completely for the money. They were showmen. They were imposters. And that was exposed by their greed as well as the false gospel that they were preaching. Look, these were unorthodox people. And so Paul says he's going to take the legs out from under them. In fact, that's just about what the NIV translates here. Here's what it says. I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Paul wants to take the legs out from under these false teachers. Now they'd used Paul's refusal to take payment against him so that they could get their hands in the pocketbook of these saints. Again, they were, they were peddlers of God's Word. Paul, Paul calls them that. And it's the Holy Spirit that inspired him to call them that. 
And the primary reason Paul was refusing support from Corinth was so that he could distance himself from these imposters here. Not only that, these false teachers, these, these intruders here, they were claiming, notice the wording here, to work on the same terms as Paul and his apostolic team you know, that, that traveled with him. That was a lie. They were not apostles. They weren't even saved. We'll find that out here in just a moment. Paul leaves no doubt as to who they're serving here in the latter part of this text. And so Paul wanted to expose them by working so differently from them that he took support from the churches in Macedonia in order to work in Corinth. He said, I don't want any of your money. Guys, listen, claiming to be an apostle is a major claim. Claiming to be an apostle is a major claim. And anybody making that claim today is making a false claim. One that should be exposed. And just for the record, there are more people making that claim today than there probably ever has been before in the history of Christianity. The new apostolic reformation is full of men claiming to be apostles today. It reaches far and wide, including right here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in large churches that you would know the name of if I named them, men claiming to be apostles. Listen, don't think this is just a first century problem that Paul's talking about here. And I have no doubt that Paul would take the exact same stance today that he took in Corinth here in the inspired Word of God and he would expose such men and women as frauds. Guys, listen. Let me just say this as clearly as I can say it. There are no apostles today. Run from any religious group that claims to have one. Warn your friends and family if they are involved in that. I'll go ahead and share that before we get to the application section of the sermon. Do you think it's serious what these men are doing? Let's, let's just finish out this text. And you can see just how serious it is. But Paul absolutely does not pull any punches here. Look, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Listen, this, is, this is too serious to be subtle. Paul takes his cards and he lays them all on the table. This is some of the strongest language you'll ever see from the Apostle Paul. These intruders, these, these false teachers that had deceived a significant amount of people here in this church, these, 
these triumphalists who believe themselves to be elite men that had claimed to have more authority than Paul, claimed special knowledge, men who had apparently convinced this church that attaching with them meant that they had some type of privileged status. These men, Paul says, were deceivers. And Paul uses the clearest terms in saying just that. They claim to be on the same work, on the same terms as Paul. We saw that just a second ago. That is, they claimed apostolic authority, but they were actually false apostles. The Greek says pseudo-apostles. They were fakes. We might use the term today, they were con artists, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Listen, any man claiming to be apostle who is not actually an apostle is by default a false apostle. There is no other option. There's no option B. If you claim to be something you aren't, you are in fact false. He or she, the one claiming to be an apostle but didn't, Paul says here is disguising as an apostle. This is serious. Listen, according to Ephesians 2.20, the apostles are the foundation of the church. That foundation has been laid 2,000 years ago. It is not still being laid today. So to claim to be an apostle is a very serious thing. Like I know I can be very stubborn about men claiming to receive revelation from God outside the Bible. But as I said last week, that is an apostolic claim whether they say that's what it is or not. And I think you can see just from our text right here how serious that is. Now look, I'm well aware that men have made that claim ignorantly. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that it's an apostolic claim. God is not speaking outside of His Word. He's given us everything He wants us to know. Right here in this book. Beware of anyone making apostolic claims. You say, well, I think I would pick them right out. Listen, Paul says that the devil does not waltz into a church with a pitchfork and horns. Right? That'd be easy to pick out. No, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So, Paul says, it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. By the way, uh, ministry of righteousness is how Paul actually defines his own ministry earlier in this book, but they are just disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Look look back at verse 3. We looked at this last week. Paul told these saints... But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what Satan did to Eve, these false teachers were doing to the unsuspecting Corinthians. 
As I read this, this reminded me of an old country song, Forgive Me. I mean a song back when country wasn't rock and roll, by the way. You know, it, you could tell the difference. Terry Gibbs sang it. Some of you have heard it. Blake's got it. He's ready. He's on. Mm. He'd sing it if he was up here. Here's how the lyrics go. Very right out the gate. Somebody's knocking. Should I let him in? Lord, it's the devil. Would you look at him? I've heard about him, but I never dreamed he'd have blue eyes and blue jeans. That's got more accurate theology than a lot of sermons today. There's a lot of truth there, right? And a lot of unsuspecting young ladies have allowed a blue-eyed, blue-jeaned devil into their lives only to cause ruin. But the same is true of a lot of churches. We must be on our guard. Look, a false teacher is not going to walk in the back door and say, hey, I'm a false teacher looking for a platform. That's not how it works. Some of the truest words I've ever read came from the pen of D.A. Carson here. He writes this, quote, The sad truth about the Christians in Corinth is that they thought themselves sophisticated believers, while in reality they were so immature they became easy dupes, end quote. Man, I think he hit the proverbial nail on the head, and I've seen the same sad scenario take place over and over in congregations that believe themselves to have a superior knowledge and a superior authority. Guys, listen, a lack of discernment stemming from a lack of biblical knowledge makes us easy prey for the enemy and his emissaries. At the end of the day, though, False teachers are not getting by. They will stand for their oppression of God's people and others. Such greedy peddling of God's Word will not just slide by the Lord unnoticed. Paul writes here, their end will correspond to their deeds. He's clearly referring to eternal punishment there. Okay, there's a number of things we can learn from this passage. A few we'll work through really quickly, then we'll latch down on one or two at the end. First, whether an elder or the richest person in the congregation, a congregation is a congregation. It's not a single individual. There's a, there's a system of checks and balances in the biblical polity, politics of the church. Paul didn't take money, it seems at least partially because he would have indebted himself to the richest of the rich in the congregation, and he refused to do that. Listen, Paul had one boss, Christ. And he refused for that to be a wealthy benefactor in the church. Paul knew that he would be judged by Christ alone and not by the people in Corinth. In fact, he told them in 1 Corinthians 4, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. Well, the same is true not only for elders, not only for deacons, not only for teachers, not only for the wealthy, not only for the poor, but for all of us. That's why we must 
work together in unity to build one another up so we can be propagating the gospel here in this community. That's, that's what we need to be about. Our right, second point. Supporting church leaders is biblical, but it's not always feasible. Look, Brian, Jacob, and Blake all work secular jobs to support themselves. Look, I, I'm, I'm gratefully thankful to the church that I can be full-time, especially at this juncture in Wendy's life when she's old and I need to take care of her. <laughs> but I am so ever thankful that God has raised up men in our congregation, men who are willing to be tent makers while also ministering to our spiritual needs here at this church. They deserve our love and they deserve our support. Thirdly, good intentions can often backfire. Look, Paul meant it for good that he wouldn't take money from these messed up people, but the false teachers took Paul's Paul's good intentions and they used it against him. Look, don't be surprised if somebody in your life does the same exact thing to you. But though usually it's our response to such an attack that speaks far louder than the misinformation that may be going around. We need to strive to handle such situations with grace. Fourth, okay, and this is really getting into the heart of the text. We must make sure that our expectations of our church leaders are biblical. Guys, look, there are expectations in our day in many settings that have nothing whatsoever to do with Scripture. The pastor must wear a coat and tie. The pastor must have a doctorate degree. His sermon should be... 25 minutes. His sermon should be an hour. He must be good at everything. The list goes on and on, but none of these things have anything to do with the Bible. Look, these false teachers in Corinth, they looked to the part. They looked to the part. Much like the scribes Jesus warned about in Luke 20. Beware of the scribes, Jesus says, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, a sham, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation, Jesus says. Look, those Jewish scribes Look to the part, just like the intruders in Corinth. But they were frauds. According to our Lord, they were greedy charlatans who took widows' money. I want to share something with you for shock value, if nothing else. I read this this week. Actually, I shared it with Brian and Jacob. Charles Spurgeon, regarded by many as the Prince of Preachers. I mean, that is his nickname. Jacob quoted him like 42 times in his sermon this morning. He is without question the most well-known Baptist preacher of the 19th century, and I don't even know who number two is. 
His Sunday morning pre-worship routine was much like mine with one addition. He smoked a cigar to the glory of God. Now how would that measure up to our 2024 mental picture of a faithful preacher? I mean, would it, would it, would it bother you to walk out the back door, to walk up to Charles Spurgeon to tell him how much you enjoyed the sermon and you caught the aroma of a Cuban cigar? Listen, I, I know that makes a lot of us quite uncomfortable to even think about. Why would Jacob quote this dude? Listen, Spurgeon is one of the Baptist giants of yesteryear. Faithful in so many ways, way beyond Todd Bryant. If you just look at what he did on a daily basis, it's, it's amazing that the man lived 50-some years. He was a worker. Do we have this mental picture that Spurgeon doesn't line up with or so many others from church history? Maybe the problem isn't Spurgeon. Maybe the problem is our mental picture. I mean, did Spurgeon violate some scripture in his pre-worship routine? I don't think so. By the way, I also read this this week. I, I, I've got to tell this. This is, this is funny for those of you that aren't stiff. We'll find out who is here in just a moment. <laughs> A guest preacher in Spurgeon's church once spoke against the evils of smoking cigars and, and Spurgeon got up to close out the sermon at the end of, of the end of the service. And here's what he said, word for word, quote, What for some is a sin others do to the glory of God. And the good Dr. Pentecost remarks notwithstanding, I intend to go home tonight and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. It is a kind of incense drifting to heaven. <laughs> End quote. I see all four of y'all that didn't like that out there. Look, that's just funny. I, I, I'm sorry. Listen, I, I'm not advocating for a smoking lounge here. That's not my point. Please don't think that. I'm really not even a huge fan of, of cigars. But what I am saying is if we're more concerned about the smell of a cigar or the fine dress of the preacher or the educational level that he's reached, whether he has a nice beard of historic proportions <laughs> or whether he looks like Brian. If we're worried about all of that more than we're concerned about the accurate preaching of God's Word, specifically the Gospel, I think we've got something deathly wrong and it will come back and bite us at some point. Look, the Jewish relig religious leaders in Jesus' day looked the part and they fooled many of the Jews. The false teachers in Corinth looked the part and the church took them in. And listen, if we're not cautious... Our mental view of what an acceptable church leader looks like, if, that, if it lacks scriptural support, I mean, if we reject a bearded cigar smoker and we replace him with a well-dressed, clean-shaven, smiling, well-spoken orator, we may end up trading Charles Spurgeon for Joel Osteen. Let us be better than that. John MacArthur aptly states, quote, to discern the true from the false spiritual leaders is vital to the health of a church. 
To fail to exercise discernment is to open wide the door to the sheepfold and allow Satan's savage wolves to ravish, ravage God's flock. Amen. Look, the Apostle Paul was not in it for the money. It takes money to live. It does. The eldership should receive compensation for their work. Paul says that. And it is work, by the way. But a man in it for the money is a false teacher. And he needs to be promoted to non-member. Paul says that too. Let's close with the example of Jesus. An example that Paul emulated, that he's already written about in this book, one that the false teachers absolutely did not follow. You'll probably remember back in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul wrote this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus was not in it for the money. The cattle on a thousand hills were already His. He owns this world. He is the creator of it. Jesus is God. But He came to this planet for our good. To lay down His life for our sins. And listen, any church leader worth his weight and worth our time, for that matter, cannot be in it for the money. But ministry is not like a corporate ladder we climb up. No, ministry, pastoral ministry, is shepherding. Sheep, that's y'all. And sheep often stumble, stray, stubborn, get dirty. I mean, shepherding is a dirty job, especially if it's done with zeal. There are far easier ways to get wealthy unless one is a showman, a con man, like these false teachers in Corinth and like so many in American Christianity today. Then it might be the easiest track to success. Because I pray here that your church leaders exhibit the heart of Jesus in leadership just as Paul was doing to these easily deceived saints in Corinth. Stand with me if you will. We'll close out in prayer.